Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey, what's up, everybody? Chris Trapasso here from CBSSports.com for another episode of the Prospect Podcast. Joined, as usual, by Matthew Collar of the Purple Insider Podcast, which is also a part of of the Blue Warrior Network. Today, we are going to talk about my 2020 redraft article that came out late last week on CBSSports.com. I haven't had a chance to talk about it yet, so Matt and I are going to break this down. He's going to rip me to shreds on some of my bad picks um, and applaud me for some of my good picks. This is the third year that I've done a redraft of the first round right after the Super Bowl, so we have so much time to digest every single rookie that's played in the NFL and the criteria, there's a lot that goes into it, but basically uh, it's just if the 2020 NFL draft happened today, all the other transactions and moves um, have gone down. Teams still have an entire offseason to fill other holes, but if the league said, hey, we're going to throw all the rookies back into the pool from 2020 and we're going to go with 2020s, draft order what would the selections be and it's mostly what I would do I kind of tried to put in there uh some thoughts of what I think teams would do but in general it's just looking at all the rookie seasons um from this past year in the NFL season and where I would slot these players based on last year's draft order I wish that they would do this just one time. Like I love redrafts to go back and say, what did we think then? What do we think now? And is it too early to say, which on a lot of these guys, it still is. And as I'm going through the redraft, even with the number one overall, I want to say, are we sure? Because it seems a little bit maybe early to be making this declaration. But imagine if this really happened though. Imagine if the NFL would say, all right, everybody gets drafted, but then we redraft everyone after one year and that's the real draft 
So you get to play somewhere and then we redraft and then everybody gets to pick. I think it would be, there's like the NFL has no super cool, crazy wrinkles. This would be something <laughs> like a weird soccer league would do in Europe is they would have everybody play for a team and then have them redraft after everybody got to be seen as a pro or something like that. I wish we could do it. Yeah, this is definitely like Barclays Premier League type stuff, like relegation or all. I don't understand any of that. But it does kind of have that feel, or it would. Uh, the theme that I will say before we get going is that, and you were kind of talking about are, are some of these uh, selections and where these guys move. Is it too early to be down on a player, or are you too high on someone after one year? The theme that I kind of took from this, just even filling it out myself and writing about all these players was that I think the league is so quick to make judgments now. And and I don't know if that's perfect. We've seen a handful of players at marquee positions, quarterback, wide receiver, that have started a little slow and have played better, deeper into their rookie deals. But I think in general, teams want to see, especially from a quarterback, really good play pretty much in their rookie season to have some kind of indication that they're going to be a good pro. So I kind of, as I was doing it, I kind of took that philosophy and was like, if you didn't have the best rookie season, you're probably going to fall. Even if you were a high pick, just not even one calendar year ago. And if you had a good rookie season, even if you were a third or a fourth round pick, I think teams are so, or would be so quick to pick those players Mm -hmm. a lot earlier cheap rookie deal. You want to get the most out of that rookie deal. That's four or five years. So that's kind of what I kind of my general takeaway from going one through 32. Yeah. I think of it as go back in time. If you could go back in time, all 32 GMs, how would you do it again? And so let's start with your first overall pick here, because I I'm going to question this right away. So you have Justin Herbert going instead of Joe Burrow. And this is where I'm waving my premature flag here. Now, I I think what Justin Herbert did was terrific this year. I mean, he set rookie records. He threw the ball all over the place and his physical skills are just off the charts. I mean, with his arm strength, he's got athleticism. He's got some guts to throw deep down the field, but I'm not ready to say that Cincinnati would definitely take him over Joe Burrow. Joe Burrow's season was cut short, but his team was also not good at all. His offensive line was about as bad as it gets in the NFL. He did have some weapons, but Joe Mixon didn't help him out at all uh, from the running back position. And I thought Joe Burrow played really well and showed some guts, some accuracy. He does not have the arm of Justin Herbert, but I'm not entirely convinced that Cincinnati would say, no, we absolutely want Herbert because I wonder about some of Herbert's things that he does well and how sustainable they are. One of them was he was great under pressure last year, which we know is kind of a statistically year to year thing that goes up and down. So when you're, you know, throwing deep down the field all the time and you're under pressure a lot. Um, do you, you know, repeat that from year to year is my question. And also, I also think that, and this is being a little harsh on a rookie, I know, but his reputation in college was, does this guy in the big moment step up big? And he didn't always do that in his first year. And he didn't always do that at Oregon. I'm not saying I'm down on him or that he's a bust or anything like that. I just wonder if the Cincinnati Bengals watched it back both of their rookie seasons, if they would definitely say, yeah, give us Herbert, we made the wrong call. Well, I'll say that uh, writing this redraft, which 32 picks usually takes a while. This took longer than any of the other two that I've done in uh, 2018, 2019 and last year, because I sat there at number one overall, like ready to type and ready to make my pick. And like even me as the GM for all 32 teams, 
it took me so long to decide would I go Justin Herbert or just stay the course with Joe Burrow. And for a lot of what you said early in that about Justin Herbert, his physical skills, the guts, uh, the arm talent, that is what the ultimate tiebreaker was for why I went Justin Herbert over Joe Burrow. I think the knee injury matters a little, but we've seen so many quarterbacks return from ACLs and they look the exact same, if not better um, than in the past. But this is a little bit of what I said in the intro that I think a team would say, man, okay, we've seen a pretty much a full season from Justin Herbert. We know he fits that mold that you and I have talked about uh, at length with the improvisation and the arm talent that can make ridiculous throws. Uh, and we've seen him succeed on a, Chargers team that wasn't great. They lost a lot of close games, but their offensive line wasn't that good either. Are we going to, with a chance to pick him or Joe Burrow, are we going to pick him or Joe Burrow who's coming off an injury that is a little bit more limited with his upside? And I think that's the one thing that I wrote pre-draft about Justin Herbert over Tua and over Joe Burrow was that he can make throws that neither of those quarterbacks can make. I like Joe Burrow and Tua, had them both graded just ahead of Justin Herbert. Um, but those things that we thought, hey, maybe if Justin Herbert can uh, be a little more aggressive and, and is not so conservative when he's under pressure, he could be really good. And he was those things in 2020. So that's ultimately, it was close, but that's ultimately why I went Justin Herbert over Joe, Joe Burrow was simply just the upside he possesses and that we saw a lot of those raw skills and talent really materialize themselves during his rookie season. And I think it's fair to look at Joe Burrow and say, clearly the translation was not there for the arm strength. I, I mm -hmm. mean, it, that he was not throwing bullets all over the place. And the funny thing is about in college, we'll say, hey, this guy's a decent athlete in college. And then he gets on an NFL field, like, not anymore. Yeah, exactly. N now all of a sudden you're a below average athlete because you have to be a great athlete in college. Like Baker Mayfield was, I thought, real athletic in college or how it looked with him moving around. The mm -hmm. NFL, no, you're, you're one of the guys who's not going to make a difference with your speed and mobility. Um, but I, I did like Joe Burrow's poise and how he looked taking on a very difficult situation. Certainly the Chargers were not a great team, but that, I think they were far more talented than what Cincinnati was bringing to the table this year. And so you'd have to kind of normalize for that. I, I get your argument for sure. The upside on Justin Herbert, there's no question it's better. Uh, I think this would be an incredibly interesting thing to hear from people inside the Cincinnati front office. Like what if they had this debate again? And I think you make a fair point about how, you know, the physical, skills are really showing up to be difference makers even for guys that don't have perfect accuracy or have other flaws in their game yeah what would be so fascinating about this is that if this really happened and like the league said do the redraft tomorrow you would have especially at the top like with the teams that have pretty much the pick of the litter of the previous draft class like the Bengals that you mentioned like what their front office would say that there would be so many of those front office members that would still believe in Joe Burrow after seeing him in his rookie season. But again, I think the chance, the opportunity to pick Justin Herbert would be very compelling and alluring for them to say, hey, you could also have Justin Herbert, offensive rookie of the year. A lot of what you questioned about him, he really answered those questions as a rookie. So that's what's so fascinating about this, especially early on, top five, top ten. 
So you went with number two and three, Chase Young still going to football team, and then Detroit taking Justin Jefferson after his historic rookie year. Uh, With number two, the fact that they don't have a quarterback and they know now that Dwayne Haskins is a bust, um, are you, are did you consider putting Joe Burrow there or even Tua there to Washington as opposed to uh, sticking with Chase Young, even though he had a phenomenal rookie season and is clearly a franchise player? I did, uh, but for a lot of the reasons that I just pointed out about why I went Justin Herbert over Joe Burrow was kind of the tiebreaker here as well, and and because. Chase Young not only had a really good rookie season, but he's playing one of the most valuable positions in the NFL. Certainly it's not in the same category as quarterback. Um, But I think the fact that he's coming off an injury, the football teams has Alex Smith who came off an injury. uh, And like I said, teams still have their entire off season. And really there's only three quarterbacks essentially to choose from, from the 2020 class that would even be close to being worthy of a first round pick. So after Chase Young or after Joe Burrow and after Tua, who we're going to get to in a second, I really thought that the Washington football team is probably going to do what most people believe they're going to do this offseason and either trade for a quarterback or sign one. They gave uh, Taylor Heineke a little two-year deal as, as kind of this promising backup after that playoff game. So I did think about Joe Burrow here, but I thought that they would be much happier going the veteran quarterback route. They have a strong defense, retain that strong defense, the most valuable and, uh, you know, important young piece on that defensive line in picking Chase Young. And And I agree with the pick that I think that they would go back and say, this guy is already a difference maker right off the bat. And I'm not going to do this all the time. I promise. But I mean, Look at the Super Bowl. Defensive lines matter. Two years in a row, Super Bowls making a big difference with defensive mm-hmm. lines. I mean, I really believe that. That is just an old football thing that will always be true, is if your front four can pressure the quarterback, you're going to be in pretty good shape. And the front four for Washington is really darn impressive now yeah, with all these top draft picks. And so solidifying that and then having your um, you know flexibility at the quarterback position I think is still good for them. Like they're in a good spot. Sometimes it can mean you have no quarterback and you're out of luck for a long time. Or sometimes it can mean that the next good quarterback for you is right around the corner and you hope to be able to give them a really nice setup. And I think that that's what Washington can do. Now on the third pick with Justin Jefferson in Detroit, we have to talk about quarterback again here because knowing what they know now, Detroit moved on from Matt Stafford Going back a year ago, it was like, well, Stafford's still their quarterback, and they're probably going to be better this year. You remember last offseason, Detroit's going to be a lot better this year. They're going to turn things around. Well, it didn't happen. So I wonder if you thought about it for them because they're the ones that uh, just traded their quarterback for Jared Goff. I didn't really, just because of Jared Goff. And not that I'm a huge Jared Goff believer, but – and yes, they were probably getting more – draft capital in return um, to take on that big contract. But I think with Jared Goff, like we mentioned, like he's a pretty good stopgap or bridge quarterback. Uh, And again, I'm a little bit concerned about Joe Burrow coming off the ACL and his somewhat limited upside. I, I agree that he's got great poise. He's tough. He's probably going to play well. Um, But I think wide receiver is even a more glaring need. And and I'm not a, you know, draft need over value, uh, you know, type of analyst, of course. But I think 
with the situation in their receiver core that Kenny Galladay, Marvin Jones, and Danny Amendola are all free agents, that if the draft, the 2020 draft was tomorrow, they would say, we need a wide receiver, and Justin Jefferson was that good to go inside the top five. And there's also no reason to think that Justin Jefferson is going anywhere. I mean, there have been the cases where somebody has their best season as a rookie. Terry Glenn back in the day for any uh, 90s fans. And um, although Glenn had a very good career, but Michael Clayton is the one that everybody points to who had this Mm -hmm. unbelievable rookie season and then never did it again. But when you look at Justin Jefferson, the skill set, the situation he's in, uh, and maybe the situation they would have put him in in Detroit – Uh, With Matt Stafford, maybe it would have changed how they felt about everything. Maybe it changes that season, and they're just looking at, hey, maybe we have to rebuild the defense again as opposed to focusing on uh, putting everything back together, which they do now. But Jefferson, his skill set, his size, his athleticism, his mentality, all those things, they check off so many boxes to say, this is not a fluke. You would instantly be adding, I think, one of the best receivers in the NFL, not just to say even the, one of the best youngest. The numbers he put up last year, you could just say one of the flat-out best. Yeah, yeah exactly. And I think for just 2021, not that the Lions, I don't think they believe that they're going to be contenders, but decent offensive line, Jared Goff, Justin Jefferson to add to that receiver room, TJ Hawkinson, throw to DeAndre Swift a bunch. I, I don't think, like, if they want to put out at least a respectable product on the field, if, if they could pick Justin Jefferson, I think they would. You've talked about how you believe that wide receiver has become the second most valuable position in the NFL, and I think you have a very good argument for that. So you're right. This is not – oh, he's a promising young rookie, he's good, he's young, um, you know, has a bright future. He's already one of the elite wide receivers in the NFL. So I think that's was all, like all that put together was the justification for Justin Jefferson going much higher than he did in the real draft, going number three overall to the Lions. Yeah, and I think that if he got past five, um, you would have been doing it wrong. <laughs> I mean, yeah, exactly, he is, exactly. He, he is such an impact, like, franchise player. Now, I do want to – this might qualify as bouncing around a little bit here, but your wide receiver rankings here, you have Brandon Ayuk as being the next guy who would have gone, and you had him going at 11 to the New York Jets, and then C.D. Lamb after that to the 49ers. Chase Claypool is a first-round pick. And Jerry Judy not even going until after LaVisca Chenault also and T. Higgins and Darnell Mooney. Uh, Explain to me the Jerry Judy take because it's sort of surprising to look and say, wow, okay, you had him falling quite a ways down the board here. Here's the thing. I mean, it's what I said earlier that it's after one season, I think reputations can change a lot quicker than they did even five or 10 years ago in the NFL. And there's nothing to say that uh, Jerry Judy can't come back in year two and, and have a really good rookie season. And he wasn't terrible in year one. A lot of his lack of production had to do with the fact that Drew Locke wasn't the most accurate quarterback and he was kind of thrust into a number one wide receiver role with Cortland Sutton going down so early. But I think, again, similar to Joe Burrow, uh, a lot of the concerns about Jerry Judy entering the draft season that He's pretty lanky. He's not amazing after the catch. He's this super savvy route runner who's going to get open and can win vertically down the field because he runs a 4-4-5. And we saw him get vertical at Alabama. Like, is he – is that all that he brings to the field, route running and speed? Is he that dangerous after the catch? And we didn't see him really produce at a high level after the catch. And I, I do think there were a lot of times where he got open and the ball was – 
at his ankles or was way over his head. But I think a lot of those other receivers, Brandon Ayuk, C.D. Lamb, certainly Chase Claypool, um, just performed a lot better in their rookie seasons. And if if all these teams, if the New York Jets had the pick of the litter, I think they would go with someone that they have seen produce um, as a well-rounded wide receiver after the catch in contested catch situations getting open, like Brandon Ayuk had after he came back from injury early in the season for the 49ers, over like the guy that everyone loved last year coming out of Alabama. Judy, uh, I think, does deserve some benefit of the doubt with Drew Locke, as you mentioned, because it just was one of those seasons where you go, oh, okay, well, this isn't really going to work then. You know, Denver. <laughs> exactly. Got, yeah. Gotcha. Okay, at least we know. Um, but at the same time, he also dropped a lot of footballs. I mean, mm-hmm. like that's what, what was really stunning to me was just how often when I was watching Denver, you see him, a guy who was you know projected by some to be the top wide receiver off the board, just not being able to bring in passes that were there. And when you're watching Justin Jefferson, for example, he catches everything. I mean, he has some of the strongest hands that you're ever going to run across. And with Brandon Ayuk, you can use him in so many different ways. I mean, the one that I thought was a little bit aggressive was Mooney, but I could see where you'd be saying about Chenault and about Mooney. These guys are playmakers. These guys, you can do multiple things with them. And if we're trying to peer into the future a little bit, do you want a peer route runner or do you want somebody who can, you know, you know, make plays after the catch or, you know, be used in reverses and bubble screens and all those things? And, you know, I think the answer is that's exactly what a lot of people are looking for. I don't know if I would put Mooney over Jerry Judy. I still think that at the long term we see route running is going to win no matter what. But if he still can't catch the ball, I mean, that that would drop him down for me just in general. It's like that's Sorry, that's the number one thing you got to do. Then everything else is after that. <laughs> yeah, and I think, like you mentioned, the ability to do or bring more to your team than just running routes and getting vertical, I think right now, again, if, if this draft happened tomorrow, teams more teams than before are going to want that from their wide receivers. And like I said, that was the one knock that, beyond Jerry Judy being a little bit skinny and he had the bad three cone, that at Alabama, especially in the final season, that wasn't as good as his sophomore year. Like, there weren't a lot of amazing plays after the catch. And I think Darnell Mooney being a fifth rounder, um, no one was expecting it, but we saw him used on jet sweeps or just quick throws into the flat, and he could make NFL defenders miss and pick up five, 10 yards on a very short, high percentage throw. So I think, again, teams would place a higher onus, and I certainly would too, on seeing production and success at the NFL level. Even being a draft analyst, I wasn't going to just throw all my evaluations out the window with this, but I wasn't going to just ride them all the way through, even if a wide receiver had drop problems and wasn't that good after the catch. So that's why LaVisca Chenault, Darnell Mooney, I had those uh, wide receivers a little bit higher just because I think they can bring more to the table than Jerry Judy. Um, and I even thought that about those players, especially Judy, before they entered the NFL last April. And let me go to your sixth overall pick where you have our guy Joe Burrow that we've been discussing here going to the Miami Dolphins. That brings up the question, Chris, in your redraft here. Would the Miami Dolphins, if given the choice to draft Justin Fields, number three overall, or to take Joe Burrow, 
who is the better prospect? Because that would be the only reason. I, I don't think that they would do Tua again after they've seen him in action. I think they would pick Burrow over Tua for sure. But would they pick instead, hey, we're going to go somebody else here who's a difference maker uh, because we know we can get Justin Fields or Zach Wilson. I think Wilson goes number two, but let's say Justin Fields. That's a really good question. I think they would pick Joe Burrow. Uh, and just for my grading system, I have Joe Burrow graded higher than Zach Wilson. I have him uh, graded higher than Justin Fields. I still think, um, and I totally agree with you that I don't know if even Zach Wilson is going to get to the Dolphins at three overall. Um, for every for all the bashing that I did of Joe Burrow earlier. I do think he's still going to be a good quarterback and a lot of what he does moving inside the pocket, throwing with impeccable accuracy at that very important intermediate range. And you're right that a lot of what Justin Herbert did um, as a rookie, you know, winning under pressure is not really sustainable, but the guys at pro football focus have really shown that the intermediate uh, play like throws from 10 to 19 yards, that is sustainable year in and year Mm -hmm. out. And Joe Burrow was good in that range. So I think the Dolphins would say, hey, look, with Justin Fields, there's a little bit of a projection when it comes to him getting through his reads and does he hold it a little bit too long? Okay, he's a better athlete than Joe Burrow, but Joe Burrow improvisationally throwing on the run when things are breaking down around him or when he just has to break the play structure is probably a little bit better and you know what you're going to get from him a little bit more on a regular basis than Justin Fields. Zach Wilson's kind of the wild card. Um, I, I have them very close. Like they're both, they're all three of them. I, I have, you know, graded very high. Um, but I think Joe Burrow and just the fact again, that the Dolphins could say, Hey, we've seen him play like a half of a season. And despite the terrible situation in Cincy, he was actually pretty good. Yeah, I think so too. And and with Fields, he just has, so much talent, but also one big red flag for me, which is hangs on to the ball for a long time. And like you said, for a guy who's so fast and will, if they runs a 40, will probably dominate it. He yeah. is not an improv quarterback. That's what I really like about Zach Wilson. I think there's He's an not extra, natural, right? There's an extra element to Zach Wilson that just screams baller to me. That's, There was one throw he makes where he's rolling out to his right. Somebody's about to crush him. He throws it all the way back across the field, like 40 yards down the field on a line to a wide open receiver. It's like, man, that's not something you see somebody coming up with very often. And that type of improv is usually required if you want to get anywhere. You can't just be like stand in the pocket type of quarterback or run the play actions type of quarterback. Um, Those are, those situations are pretty rare. And and I, on an earlier podcast sort of compared him to Ryan Tannehill, which is a, a very good NFL quarterback, but I mean, are you taking it over Burrow who does have that as part of his game? The injury is really tough to factor. So I kind of throw it out for now. Like let's assume he's coming back normal. I agree with you that Burrow would be a little bit over Justin Fields, but I think that that would be a really hard decision for the Dolphins. Yeah. One thing on, on the red flag for Justin Fields, Sigmund Bloom of uh, football guys that been on Twitter forever. Like the whole time I've been on Twitter, that's like decade. He's such a smart football mind that, in him diving into the 2021 quarterbacks already, he said that what he took away, and I think this is perfect, that outside of structure, Justin Fields looks to run. And he can run and he's fast and he's, I think, can pick up big chunks of yards with his legs because he's deceptively fast. He's kind of tall, long strider. Outside of structure, Zach Wilson looks to still throw the football and he's more natural doing that, that 
rolling right, rolling left, dodging an edge rusher or a defensive tackle. His head is still up, and it just seems like he always finds an open receiver in that scramble drill. With Justin Fields, it's a little bit more forced. He might keep his head up, but then he doesn't really like what he sees, and then he just decides to run. I think over time, you don't want your quarterback running as much. You want your quarterback not taking as many hits and just moving the football more efficiently through the air. So that's really the difference. I I agree with you on Justin Fields' red flag, but that's kind of the difference between Fields as an improv quarterback and Zach Wilson and Joe Burrow as an improv quarterbacks. All right, so let's talk about where you had Tua because I want to know if you think it's an overreaction to be saying that you know Tua would just barely be inside the top 10 um, or if you would even have him farther down because of how poorly he finished the season. I, I saw some people tweeting about you know, some of his statistics like adjusted yards per attempt and things like that from his first year and how, hey, they're not that horrible compared to past um, quarterbacks that have been rookies. It's very hard to be a rookie in the NFL, right? Right. Um, but, you know, that the, the skill set is just not going to be in vogue at this point. And so that's where I wonder you have him going ninth to the Jaguars. Did you even consider saying, you know what, the guy might not even be a first rounder at this point because of the investment that's always required when you draft quarterback? I did think of that, but then I realized, again, it's kind of this delicate balance of like what teams have now seen from these rookies in the NFL and then how much and how like how much they like them and how much time they poured into watching the college film. And you remember a year ago, Tua was very universally liked uh, after Joe Burrow. And if it weren't for Joe Burrow transferring to LSU uh, and having this ridiculous season, Tua would have been the first overall pick. Like there was everyone loved Tua Tungavailoa. I, I realized that ultimately because there was only two quarterbacks inside this top 10 or three that were even worthy of potentially being first rounders that he probably wouldn't fall too far because I don't think the entire NFL is completely down on Tua and is writing him off as a bust immediately. But I do think he would fall from the sixth overall pick to the Dolphins or the fifth overall pick to the Dolphins to all the way to nine because, yeah, I think a lot of his skill set um, that were weaknesses that if you – that in writing up to a before the draft, I liked him. He was my number three overall prospect, but I said, you know, the arm strength and the athleticism, it's what you talked about that he looked like a good athlete in the sec, but not a tremendous cam Newton type athlete in the sec. And we saw him have problems when he needed to really push the ball through tight windows or really outside of that Arizona Cardinals game that he was really good in uh, have problems when he needed to elude defenders and either run or throw from outside the pocket. So I think he still would go relatively high, but I think more than any of the other quarterbacks and really uh, in terms of the players who were so heavily or highly touted, his reputation has took one of the biggest hits and he really didn't even play a full season. But after the rookie year, I think a lot more, GMs and head coaches and offensive coordinators are down on Tua as compared to a year ago. So how did you factor the um, Trevor Lawrence part of this when you were when you were deciding to make him the ninth overall pick? Because clearly, you know, Lawrence is going to be number one. I mean, if he's not, it would be completely stunning. Which, side note, pro day Trevor Lawrence? Why? I don't really understand that decision from him. Like, who – who advised you to have a pro day? Like, that doesn't make any sense. You were going number one either way. But that aside, because if you just, like, tweak a hammy or something in the pro day, is that, like, what you really want? Anyway, um, 
so how did you factor that in? Like, do you think that Jacksonville would have rather been another year down the road on their top quarterback pick, or would they just take both of them and see who works out and trade the other one? Yeah, probably the latter. I think a team that has had such problems um, at the quarterback spot for so long that that's what they would ultimately do with this redraft though. I, I don't really factor in like, Oh, the draft, like the real 2021 draft is in like two months. So they sure. can like just wait and pick Trevor Lawrence. It's almost like, which I probably should have said that earlier that it, it it's almost like what is this redraft is like replacing the 2021 draft. Not like, Oh, they'll wait on Penny Sewell. It's kind of like replacing this rookie class. But if they had to, I think, Picking both quarterbacks, which I can't wait until we see a team actually do this, um, that you and I have now talked about it for a while, that like to have like back-to-back first-round picks that went high, let them battle it out in training camp, trade the other one. Um, we kind of saw it with Josh Rosen, but there wasn't really a quarterback battle. Right. Uh, I think that's what the Jacksonville Jaguars would ultimately do, and I obviously think Tua would be in a pretty tough battle against Trevor Lawrence, especially when you're looking at the difference in their skill sets. And they seemed really sure, Arizona did, that Rosen was not the guy, which mm-hmm. I can understand because so quickly it was clear that this person is putting up historically bad numbers for a rookie who's been given this much opportunity. And no matter how bad the team is, you shouldn't be that bad. And it's played out to the point where clearly he w- they made the right decision in moving on to Kyler Murray. But you're right. It would be interesting for a team to make that type of decision where they said, you know what, I'm going to let both of you play this out and see how it goes. And then we'll just pick the one guy and trade the other. And it's not a bad approach. You can never have too many quarterbacks. So tell Tell me, those are the most interesting to me. Of course, I focus on the quarterbacks, no surprise. What was the one that you haggled over second most? Because you said the top pick was the most challenging. What was the one where you're like, I don't know what to do with this guy? Probably it would be a team. It would be the first selection for the Las Vegas Raiders that I had them picking uh, Cameron Dantzler, your guy from the Vikings who went in the third round. His film was I thought like fringe first round, early second round, but then he was tall and lanky with short arms and he ran in the four sixes, I believe. Uh, So that ultimately sent him to round three, played not so well as a rookie, got injured, came back. I mean, you can speak to this more than I can, played a lot better. If they were picked Cam Dantzler because they do have a big need at the cornerback spot or Antoine Winfield Jr. And I know I get it with the Super Bowl. Like everyone would say, oh, they would definitely pick Antoine Winfield. Antoine Winfield Jr. had a very good rookie season. He wasn't amazing in coverage. He was outstanding, just like his dad, as a run defender and as a blitzer. But I was sitting there at whatever, pick 18 or whatever it was, the Las Vegas Raiders, like, would they pick a corner or a safety? Because they have so many needs in their secondary. And I ultimately went with Dantzler ahead of Antoine Winfield Jr. Just because I think corner is a little bit more valuable. And I do like the size that Cameron Dantzler has and just the physicality and the instincts that I think he has as a boundary cornerback. And it's very hard to find a really good boundary cornerback in today's NFL. Yeah, it's really only the injuries that are concerning with Dantzler, not the 40-yard dash, which everybody obsessed over. And you knew, like, the truth is somewhere in the middle. His agent put out one where he was running a 4-3. Okay, pal. 
Uh, you might. We're going to wanna... get that this year, by the way. Yeah. Oh, big time. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone's going to run four three. Things. Yep. Exactly. Uh, but you know, we can also watch it and use a stop stopwatch, man, and it doesn't add up to being four <laughs> three. So <laughs> what? Uh, that was a mistake by them, and maybe that hurt them because teams went like, "What is your deal? Trying to sell us on something that is not even the reality. You're not a four three guy." Uh, but it turns out with him, he's got great instincts, and I think that that helps a lot. He makes plays on the ball, which is a thing that I want to focus on a lot when looking for corners in the future. I don't want to say, oh, this guy had like no PBUs or no interceptions, but man, he really just runs with receivers pretty well. Like, dude, you should be a baller. If you're mm-hmm. if you're an NFL player, you should be making plays on the ball in college. You'd be hard-pressed to convince me otherwise. Like, oh, well, you know, he was there in coverage or other, other teams didn't target him that much. I don't want to hear that because at some point, you should be getting picks, getting PBUs, like making plays for your team or be a punt returner or something because you're so good with the ball. Like there should be something in there that says you are a baller. And there was for Dantzler and there is for Dantzler in his first year. And I think that that's something that is natural that you could build on that in the biggest moment against Chicago in a division game, he gets a pick from, uh, you know, Mitchell, Mitchell Trubisky. And then you have another game against Jacksonville. I know it's Jacksonville, but Jacksonville's driving and the Vikings need somebody to step up, make a play, and he you know, gets a strip and, and causes a fumble. So things like that, I think natural playmakers are something that belong uh, in the secondary, certainly in the top 15. And, and I think that's a good, a good pick for him to be a first-rounder because there were so few uh, great corners in this particular draft. Yeah, it is really easy. Yeah, there were not a lot of corners. I mean, like the first round guys were not good at all. Like I have AJ Terrell going back to the Falcons. That was the only first round corner that I still had in in round one. And and I think the Falcons would kind of feel a little bit like, ah, okay, we'll take AJ Terrell again because he flashed a little. Um, To your point on Dancer and the playmaking ability, I think I said it on an earlier episode that I look at ball skills. I mean, it's not the most heavily weighted category in my grading system, but it is second most that the league plays around 60 to 70% zone coverage today. There's like some mixed coverages where there's man on one side and corner on the other. But I think for the longest time, it's been like easy to fall in love with the athleticism and the ability to mirror a wide receiver down the field and how good are they in press, man, that's the hardest thing to do with the league being basically a zone league. If we're going to call the league a nickel package league, because that's how frequently teams are playing nickel, like around 65% of the time, they're playing zone, a similar percentage. You need that, like those instincts, the length, and what I always write in my scouting reports, the awareness as the ball is mm-hmm. arriving. That being a guy in Buffalo, I, I watched Leotis McKelvin and Ronald Darby that had all the athleticism in the world that could run with any wide receiver in the league. Then the ball arrives, they're in perfect position and they're looking around. They have no idea where the ball is. They had a problem finding the football in the air. And I think that was the one thing watching Cameron Dantzler at Mississippi state in the sec against those Alabama receivers against LSU and Jamar chase. That was kind of his claim to fame that he did the best job against Jamar chase that when the football is coming, he knows how to get his hands on it. And that is still something that I think, even if you're kind of down on the athleticism, like you would be with Cameron Dantzler, if he shows in college that he's around the football often, I think that will translate to the NFL level. I mean, he can't be a completely terrible athlete or super short or have a crazy weird body, but I think Dantzler is 
proof that you can overcome some of those things if you just have those natural coverage instincts. I mean, Jeffrey Akuda had a crazy combine, had all the length in the world. And again, we're not burying him or C.J. Henderson after their rookie seasons, but those two were crazy athletes that ran really fast and had great combine workouts um, and were supposed to be these instant Darrell Rivas types that I think had problems finding the football as it arrived because they're having to deal with Devontae Adams getting off the line, and then it's an intricate route, and then, oh, here comes the ball. What do I do? Oh, it's already past me. So I think Cameron Dantzler, and, and for a lot of these young corners, still being able to just find the football, that can be the saving grace even if you're not perfect in an, you know the entire play. Like if, if your press isn't great or if you're in zone and you didn't read something correctly, still having those instincts I think is absolutely vital. It's a good point. And the other thing, too, is that teams are going to move the ball. I mean, they're going to throw the ball. They're going to have success. They're going to complete passes. Teams are completing, what, like 67% of passes these days. Who can change the game with a big pass breakup or with a big interception? And I know interceptions from year to year certainly vary, but making plays on the ball doesn't seem to vary. It seems like Mm -hmm. guys who are getting interceptions will get pass breakups. And so when it's third down and 12, and you've got to have someone make a play, or the other team is driving, it's in the red zone, you've got to make a play. Like, who's going to be able to do it? And uh, you even see this with Tyron Matthew, where his coverage numbers this year weren't as good, but you'll take him because he can change a playoff game with an interception. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, I, I think that Marcus Peters might be the good example of this, where you have a lot of times where you go, I don't know about that, Marcus Peters, but then he'll get five picks. And all exactly. of them change the game. And the, the turnovers, with everybody scoring so much, uh, it, you know, it's always Are been huge. important. Yeah, it's always been yeah. important. Like, no football coach would ever forget to mention the turnover ratio and how much that means. But it might mean even more with teams scoring on a lot of possessions. So let me throw one more question at you then. Um, as you mentioned, Jeff Akuda, C.J. Henderson – I mean, were those the guys that you said, you know what, I'm not even sure that they would be up there at at, at this point? Um, like, who was the hardest one to say, yeah, I don't even know where the league would pick this guy at this point because it did not go that well in the first year? Probably Jeffrey Akuda because like a lot of the players that really were picked inside the top five with Joe Burrow and Tua, uh, he was universally loved. Like, I, I don't know if there was any draft analyst out there that did not have Jeffrey Akuda as his number one cornerback in last year's draft class because he was over six foot, 200 pounds, had a great combine, was very productive at Ohio State in his two seasons as the full-time starter there, super twitchy, man-to-man coverage, which again, that's kind of seen as, oh, that's more difficult than playing zone. And he just got smoked all season. I, I was really surprised to see it. I really like Jeffrey Akuda as much as anyone else. So I... As I was getting into, okay, this is the range where corners could go, I, I thought about him, but I, I just think he was so bad as a rookie. Again, if the draft was today or tomorrow, a GM saying, hey, we're going to just trust what we saw in the Big Ten against Indiana and Northwestern um, as opposed to wide receivers in the NFC North. I, I just don't think he would go that early. I do want to talk about one other player because I think it's really fascinating that it kind of seems like I'm, I'm so down on these rookies that haven't had great seasons. Caleb on chase on a head still going in the first round who got picked by the Jaguars in real life in this redraft, Tennessee Titans. Uh, he was the edge rusher from LSU uh, came back from an injury at his, in his LSU career and was really good. Kind of this speed to power rusher. Uh, there were some concerns about his 
lack of size or was he powerful enough? Was there too many inconsistencies in his game that he looked like a top 10 pick one game and then looked like a third or fourth rounder the other? He had 29 quarterback pressures as a rookie, and he they just let him rush a ton. So that was not a high number, but 19 of them came in the final five games of the season. And say what you want about, okay, maybe he just – uh, you know, face lesser competition. He showed that late season flash where I think a lot of teams would say, hey, you know what, especially the Tennessee Titans that need pass rush. He did not have a good rookie season, but at least we saw those flashes down the stretch where maybe instead of hitting that rookie wall, he really took his game to the next level and kind of has a building block going into year two. Yeah, this is the thing that happened to a few guys, including Cameron Dantzler, where he had the injuries early on and then really emerged in the second half of the season. But even Andrew Thomas, too. Andrew Thomas's mm-hmm. first half of the season was Brutal. just miserable. I mean, about as, bad, about as bad as you could do at left tackle. And then he started to turn around and played a lot better as he went along. And I think that makes it really tough because sometimes you could talk yourself into it. They do this with baseball all the time. Oh, that's September call-up who hit eight home runs in September. Man, yeah. he's going to be great. And then he starts in left field the next year and can't really swing it because the season is 162 games long. The season is 16 games long, not six. Uh, but those signs, I think you have to factor in because The guy has to learn how to play in the NFL, and there's such a long way to go. And so at least you saw it. You don't want to go through an entire first year and not see any of it and then Mm -hmm. try to talk yourself into it. Uh, You mentioned, you know, the Minnesota connection. Well, Laquan Treadwell was that way. One catch in his first season. It's like unreal. No matter what you do, going from one to being a good player as a first-round pick is going to be really, really hard, no matter how many, um, you know, balls out of the jug machine that you catch like <laughs> going from yeah a lot's going wrong if you only have one catch in <laughs> right. your rookie season like separation right. your hands like that is very difficult to come back from one other thing that I I do have Andrew Thomas at pick number 32 to the Kansas City Chiefs because of a lot of the points that you brought up that horrible as a rookie or, or in the first half of his rookie season but down the stretch kind of came into his own. And I think teams really value that at quarterback or really any position that at least show me a flash. You don't have to be amazing, but show me a flash heading into year two. Yep. And, uh, you know, I also think, too, that with some of these teams, you'd love to tell them you don't have to. And I know you want to, but you don't have to start a guy week one right away if he's not ready. If you Mm -hmm. see it in training camp and he's not ready, start somebody else and wait till week five or six to see where the guy is at. I know that rookie contracts, you got to get as much out of them as you possibly can. But if you're the New York Giants and you're not even legitimately competitive, maybe it's just a better – I know no team looks themselves in the mirror and says we're not legitimately competitive in the NFL. Everybody wants to win every (laughs) year. So I get it. I just think we see this all the time where you're like – Would it kill you to ease this guy in as opposed to just forcing these players who might not be ready? Although, uh, for Thomas specifically, he was supposed to be that guy. Like, Mm -hmm. that was his report was, hey, Mekhi Becton is a freak, but he doesn't have the experience of Thomas. He doesn't have the technique of Thomas. And then he gets to New York, though, and there were reports that they were trying to completely change his technique from what he had been doing in Georgia, which, you know, you can do, of course, but, like, not right away just throw into him and now you've got to block completely differently Uh, I think that it's always interesting to look at what factors the coaching staff and the team and the organization had on how the player performed yeah and one last thing on Thomas before we wrap up uh, what's so interesting is that it, it feels like 
back in the day, like when we were growing up, like first round picks, like a lot of them didn't start their seasons and they were signing those gigantic contracts yeah, right. right out of college. And now it's like, Hey, you have Andrew Thomas on a four year deal. That's cost controlled. Right. That you get that fifth year option. If he's not really comfortable with this new technique coming from this super run heavy system at Georgia, like start him in week eight. Maybe he needs to get a little bit stronger. And it's funny that you like never see that anymore with an mm-hmm. early pick. I mean, occasionally there's like a one or two, like not even like a Jordan love situation, but there's like one or two that get a little bit of some type of red shirt. But back in the day, it was like, oh, yeah, that quarterback's not playing or like that left tackle is not going to be on the field until November. And it just doesn't happen anymore. Right. All right. That's all we have today for Matthew Collar. I'm Chris Trapasso. Remember to rate, subscribe, review to this podcast and to Matt's podcast, Purple Insider Daily Minnesota Vikings Insight. Thank you for listening to the Prospect Podcast.